The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is Serious Serious Fun. Hello and welcome to another episode of Serious Fun, where today we're going higher, farther, and faster. That, yeah, that, okay, the notes, yeah. Uh, as we discuss the latest entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Captain Marvel, or as the uh, studio insists on calling it, Marvel's Captain Marvel. This war is just the beginning. I'm not going to fight your war. I'm going to end it. The film coming in at the 21st spot in the Marvel Cinematic Uni- uh, Universe franchise and just for its potential grand finale in Endgame marks the first time a female character has ever been the, the lead in an MCU movie. Uh, it's been about 11 years since this started and we're only now just getting to that. So uh, progress, I guess. Uh, here to talk about it uh, with me today, uh, a guy who has seen this movie. Well, how many times have you seen this already? I've seen it three times. Three times. Uh, a Captain Marvel super fan. Uh, a professor at uh, Colorado University Boulder uh, of Media Studies, and uh, just an all-around great guy. You heard him before. We had our Spider-Man episode uh, last year. He was on for that. I said, hey, let's get you back on to talk about Captain Marvel, and so this is that. Jay Richard Stevens, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So tell us a little about your kind of connection to Captain Marvel, because uh, you, like I said, you are a Captain Marvel super fan. I think that's putting it mildly. <laughs> sure. Um, well, um, Captain Marvel and Miss Marvel, uh, um, back you know in the in the older generations, were um, characters that were in my um, reading portfolio growing up. You know, I read a lot of Marvel comics, some DC. I, th- I think I'd mentioned that. Um, I was an Avengers guy, um, which is a pretty you know big um, part of the equation. That I have, I've been joking with some of my friends that you know. You tend to either be an X-Men guy or an Avengers guy. Um, and Captain Marvel or Miss Marvel from that time is one of those characters that bridges both of those universes together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I've kind of had some interest in this character in particular all along. Um, we talked about how through the before, like through the 90s, uh, my readership wasn't great. And I kind of fell off with some of those other versions um, of the character. Um, but I was fully reading it on board when the new one launched in 2012 and that new series. And and so I've been really interested both in the thematic, um, elements that are represented in this character, um, and in the books, but also just, um, you know, just kind of the journey, um, you know, through all of these different sagas and, and transition points. Um, I've done work um, on this particular character, presented some papers. I have a book chapter coming out. Um, There's some um, elements there, but I'm also just really um, impressed and enthusiastic about uh, the many different ways they're trying to bring forward some themes which are targeted towards expanding the readership to a degree, but are also about 
writing some oversights and wrongs in kind of previous trajectories of Marvel Comics. And I've just been interested in, in all of those things together. So this is a very um, well-centered text for me. Yeah, and this is absolutely a character where Marvel kind of has a vested interest in pretending that prior to 2012, she almost didn't exist. <laughs> exactly. Um, why, why is that? Well, this, you know, comics, we are a, a very um, interesting um, mode of writing when you have so many hands involved in so many different series and so many different comics and so many different um, retroactive continuities at work. Um, this particular character has some very unfortunate chapters in her history, um, mostly because as she was passed from creator to creator, um, she wasn't handled evenly. Um, she started off as a book about superheroic feminism. Um, so the idea that, um, you know, Miss Marvel in 1977 is supposed to represent feminism. Um, of course, she had existed in the Captain Marvel series uh, before that, and we could maybe talk about that in a little bit. Um, but when her own uh, book was canceled, she was being written by Chris Claremont. Um, when her book was canceled and she was moved to the Avengers, which is what um, often happens um, with characters that aren't pulling their weight in sales, um, they get thrown on the Avengers because that's where you can mm -hmm. have a lot of different characters at once. Um, there were a couple of storylines that were um, pretty, by today's standard, especially offensive, but were offensive at the time. Um, she was abducted. She was raped. She was mind wiped. She lost her powers. Um, Chris Claremont saw that and got upset and kind of intervened. Um, there's a whole um, element of taking her out of the Avengers and putting her into the X-Men series that he was writing, which is when she became binary and, and kind of got this new identity. Um, but even when she came back in the 90s, um, right, certain writers gave her this, um, you know, this inferiority complex. She had a bout with alcoholism where she got kicked off the Avengers for drinking and flying um, by Tony Stark, no less, which was really um, interesting. Um, Irony! <laughs> yeah, right? Um, but all of these things um, are happening because different people are taking different takes on this character. Um, and the few people that really invested heavily, for example, the Chris Claremonts, you know, they weren't always around or in comics or working on the right comics to be able to control it and to control the particular arc or character. And so when it came time, you know, for the MCU and we started having all these controversies about Black Widow or, you know, why doesn't, why aren't we seeing action figures for her? Why doesn't she have a solo film? And other people are saying, wait a minute, there's an Avengers movie, but where's the Wasp? who was a founding member and the, actually the character that named the Avengers originally, it started to become apparent, well, right, Marvel's um, long history of having characters that have, um, you know, that that flaw, the flawed heroism, the, the character flaw, the ones for females were all really politically incorrect and terrible. Um, yeah. The idea that Carol Danvers, for example, had been raped, had given birth to a child that became her lover. I mean, all, all those crazy things, the alcoholism, they just, you can't really deal with that. Um, in terms of, yes, you can rewrite all that for the screen, but you can't have the comic fans coming out of the theater and going on camera and saying, wow, I'm really interested on in how they're gonna handle rape. 
mm-hmm. or you know, if we're talking about the Wasp, how are we going to handle the domestic violence? You know, inherit with that character. How are we going to handle all of these really terrible things? So this particular um, character needed some reworking, um, and and Marvel has invested a lot of energy. Uh, first, by handing her over to creators who would know a little bit more about some of the issues involved, uh, most famously Kelly Sue DeConnick, um, but just letting women write this character and work on her backstory and try to find places where the legacy and history of the character can be honored in ways that kind of soften some of the really unfortunate aspects, um, which is what they have to do with all their characters, but they really had a project on their hands with this one. Uh, And it's been fairly impressive how much work they've done over the last few years to try to reduce the tension that was going to come when this character hits the screen. And yet. um, (laughs) So here's the thing that, and I, we will get to the movie here momentarily, but I feel like all this is important context to understand why this movie works as well as it does um prior to this film coming out they redid the civil war storyline uh right. so they, they had done this back in what oh seven no oh six was, was when the first civil right. war okay. series ran and yeah. so of course yeah. that was the superhero registration act it became the basis for the film captain america civil war um mm-hmm. they said hey that worked well let's do it again but we'll put Iron Man on the Captain America side, arguing against essentially extrajudicial sort of imprisonment based on, you know, uh, you know, basically precognition right. uh, and Captain Marvel on the side uh, that Iron Man would be in the other one where she is very much a, all for people uh, getting locked up because someone saw the future and said they might commit a crime. Right. Um, and they did this before they had and, and they knew the movie was coming. And they did right. it anyway. And so now we're in this position where a lot of people are going to be coming out of the theater. They're going to be really excited to read Captain Marvel comics. And <laughs> it's going to be hard to point them toward a comic that's actually close to the movie because for a long time there, Carol was basically uh, fascist, like for lack of a better word. It was. I mean, she took that that turn just as Iron Man did, right? Right. Um, you know, in the original. Um, now, there's also something going on there when you think about civil war two um it it, it is <laughs> which i don't advise she, doing if you can help right it. i mean i mean it, it it wasn't their finest narrative hour um but you know what they were trying to do i think honestly was um everywhere that you know if iron man and captain america had become kind of the marquee figures um in terms of moral authority um, you know, Captain America famously is the moral authority of the of the Marvel Universe. And then Iron Man, because of the film popularity, had gained this kind of status. Um, so they're the two that are going to be at odds. You saw this careful replacement of anything, anywhere Captain America was, that's where we're going to put Captain Marvel. Um, and we're going to put them side by side. They have a lot of dialogue together. Um, you know, if, in the 2012 series in which she gets the name, I think it's an interesting choice that they had Captain America be the one to convince her to take that name. Um, so, you know, there's a very interesting sense. I think they were, they were looking ahead. And when somebody says, how dare she take this name? It's like, well, yeah, Captain America kind of forced her to, so take mm-hmm. it up with him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Are you going to argue with him? Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and so there, there's that. Um, I suspect though, that people walking into a comic store today, um, civil war two may not be, 
you know, a, the place they would land. Um, there's been this big push of books um, around her, you know, her own um, solo series just relaunched. Um, so we're only a few issues in on that. Um, Life of Captain Marvel um, just finished up, which is a miniseries. Um, you know, there are some jumping on points, but you're right. They're all centered in this evolving, um, mm-hmm. you know, comics based, um, yeah. you know, continuity, not, um, not, not going to be for someone who just walks in out of the movie and says, I want to see what happened when she left with the people that she left with at the end of the film. Right. Well, because well, that's yeah, just as a, as we'll go ahead and just throw up the spoiler beacon right now. This is going to spoil the entire movie. So if you have not watched <laughs> it yet, stop listening, go see the movie. Um, but yeah, it, it does not lead nicely from that at all. And that's sort of historically been a problem with superhero comics in general. Um, the film adaptations don't necessarily, there's no neat, way to get somebody who's excited about the movie and put them in a position where they can go see the characters as they're used to them. Right. right. And, and, and audiences are sophisticated to understand uh, sophisticated enough to understand that there are in fact different interpretations of these characters, but it's nonetheless still jarring. Right. And I mean, they did try some experiments. I mean, ultimate Spider-Man, for example, mm-hmm. was, you know, famously for that purpose, that very purpose, people walking out of the, the Sony um, Sam Raimi first film wanted to see Spider-Man could walk into a comic store and read ultimate Spider-Man. And that was a good jumping on point, but you can't do that for every single character. Um, not unless you just start writing a cinematic set of comics. Mm-hmm. They do have some of those, um, you know, here and there, but the, the point is to say that it's not really meant to make that transition. If you're interested in Carol Danvers and Captain Marvel, you're going to want to get into where she is now anyway. Um, but that's going to take some work to do that. Um, there's a lot of backstory to, to deal with. Um, but it is, it is interesting because, you know, on the screen, it's just, it's the same, same kind of problem you had with wonder woman. Um, when wonder woman came out and I had friends who saw that and thought, I really want to read wonder woman. And I thought, ah, yeah, good luck, buddy. That's, uh, I mean, yeah, a series had just recently started in 2016, but it was nothing like the film. Not really. No, it and was good, so, yeah, not yeah, at all. Right. And so it's kind of like you, you want to read something different. And, and when you try to, that film, even more than this one, had that problem. Because when you think about any, any of these characters, especially the female ones or the minority characters, take on so much weight of the different versions um, of them that they're trying to um, interact um, with those different fan bases. And Wonder Woman, there's not a comics version that matches the film version. There just isn't. Uh, She's an amalgam. And Captain Marvel is very similar in that regard. Um, There are pieces of this story that are new. Um, There are lots of threads that are reinterpreted and, and kind of massaged to fit. Um, you can recognize a lot of the classic storyline, but there is also a significant amount that's changed. This 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 version doesn't exist in those other forms. Um, right. So there, there there's always going to be that struggle. Yeah, and and I would recommend that if you are interested, in having seen this movie, the current ongoing uh, Captain Marvel series by Kelly Thompson is actually pretty good. I read the first issue yesterday, and I'm mm-hmm. already adding it to the pull list because I think there's a lot of cool stuff they're doing in there. Um, but that's about as good as like recommendation as I can give at the moment. The life of Captain Marvel is pretty good too. 
Yeah, and then there's um, they they issued a one shot. Um, I'm gonna get the title wrong, but it's Captain America. I want see. I want to say the Brave and the Bold, but that's <laughs> that's clearly that's, not, uh, not gonna be it. But um, there's a one shot that they issued that is not event focused, but um, but at the same time, it it's supposed to to give people a more kind of limited um approach i'm trying to see if oh captain captain marvel braver and mightier okay um that's the the one that that just released and that one it's a one shot it it should give movie audiences a contained experience so they can decide okay i do want to read this now you can go find a jumping on point on one of the other series that's running yeah, and, and I think what's interesting, too, is that uh, like we, we talked about her sort of being uh, in this kind of role that other male heroes have filled before. Um, and back in 2008, when the Iron Man film came out and everybody loved Iron Man uh, in the comics, he was still very much in that space where nobody liked him. Right. Um, and so Matt Fraction kind of had to do a lot of the heavy lifting and rehabilitating. I think Kelly Thompson's going to end up doing that with her current series. And uh, right. I think she'll do a good job with it. But it's it is interesting how much these two things kind of work at odds sometimes. Yeah. And I mean, in, in the comics, um, you know, I think they did anticipate it. I, I'm always curious, you know, how much of that is planned and how much of that is is accidental. Um, but, you know, in Life of Captain Marvel, the idea is that she goes on sabbatical for a year. Uh, because of all of these struggles, you know, it's not just that civil war, but then she went out to space and had all these adventures. Um, and that book kind of starts with this discussion with Tony Stark about, you know, the public doesn't know what to think about you right now. And I'm like, neither does the movie audience, right? That's what we're talking Mm -hmm. about. Um, and so you can kind of see that reflected in the text, but I mean, it's, it's also very interesting. They're very aware that they've got a delicate situation here. Um, at the same time, they're going to keep telling stories because they're, they have to. Yeah. So let's talk about the movie. Um, <laughs> we're, we're pretty far Absolutely. in already. Let's get to the movie. <laughs> so uh, so a couple things we got to start off. As, as of this recording, this movie is projected for $153 million opening, probably going to be higher once the final totals come in. Uh, it's got a few weeks to itself before Shazam comes out, which is kind of the next big tentpole release. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the third highest March opening of all time, the seventh largest opening weekend for the MCU. And that's before you factor in the worldwide grosses. So she's sitting at about $455 million worldwide in one weekend. Um, so there's a lot to talk about with the film itself, but we have to kind of talk about in the context of the sort of reactionary boycott that kind of sprung up based on honestly very innocuous comments Brie Larson made. Uh, but I think these numbers basically sum up the whole idea that this boycott was never actually really a thing and whatever buying power they think they had was severely uh, overestimated. Well, more so in this case than ever before. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to give a little bit of um, the context running into it, um, this is not, of course, the first film that's been in the crosshairs. Black Panther was in the crosshairs. Of course, um, two Star Wars films at this point have been. Um, yeah, that's a whole you know. other thing. Yeah, it is. But the, but the people involved, um, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you some of the um, most um divided and divisive interactions I've seen have actually been in Star Wars groups about mm-hmm. Captain Marvel this weekend. Um, so, I mean, there is a significant amount of crossover um, between yep. um, these these groups. Um, but in this case, we actually have numbers um, that are very interesting to kind of make this come into, into focus. So, 
what happened um, in the midst of this? Yes, Brie Larson said some things. We could tease out what all of that is. Um, but there's know, certainly reading, nothing that inflammatory in what she said. Oh, no, not not unless you choose to take it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a, in a nutshell, just for the, the audience, um, she had a, a pretty thin skinned response to some um, when she was she was interviewed about a wrinkle in time um, when that film came out. And one of the reporters asked her what she thought about some of the negative reviews for that film. Um, she happened to say um, in that that she didn't care. She didn't care what critics thought. She cared what audience thought. But the way that she said it was, I don't care what white male critics have to say about this film because it was a love story for Mm -hmm. African-American women. I care more about them. And that created kind of a tension around that. But, you know, I, I read that as a, you know, that's what some actors do when they don't like what the critics are saying. They Mm -hmm. say critics don't matter. Um, but there's a trajectory. Um, you know, then she was on um, an awards platform and she said that one of her causes was about increasing diversity um, in critic, in critical reviews of films. Um, and then when it came for her press junket for um, Captain Marvel, she said that she had commissioned a study um, with a data scientist to look at um, the proportion of, or, or I should say the demographics of um of um, the the interviews, her experience had been that nearly 100% of the people that had interviewed her had been white and male. She wanted to know if that was systemic, and it turns out it is, which I think most of us that, you know, are familiar with the film industry already know that, but she went out and actually did that. Um, and then that led her to um, invite a woman to her press junket for uh, Marie Claire's um, UK edition in order to try to change the you know, the, the diversity that's her, uh, trajectory of it, how that was read along the way by people who had some other lenses to that was that she was exclusionary towards white males because of the way she was saying that, um, that doesn't rhetorically add up, but that's kind of where these, um, these online discussion points, um, kind of go sideways where this hits numbers though, is very interesting. Um, so a relatively new publication, they wouldn't say they're new, but they seem to be, um, came on the scene in December, um, and started, um, talking in social media and on their website about specifically this film, um, and others. But, um, what was interesting was that in January, um, they reported a quote unquote drop. Um, in enthusiasm for the film based specifically on Brie Larson's comments. Um, Their rationale for doing that was apparently that they had looked at box office pros numbers, which had predicted $140 million opening. And then when official tracking started in late January for this film, um, it predicted, the first prediction was 100 million opening, give or take 20 million. So their parsing of those numbers were Official tracking says 80 million, which represents a 60 million drop from what Box Office Pro had said. That's all because of Brie Larson. Um, Well, that made a lot of people laugh, but it also made a lot of other people just start passing it around. But what it did is it also set up a kind of litmus test. 
Um, so now here we are, we're watching this particular outlet and all of these people that are talking about it repeat these numbers over and over. So that comes to the moment of here's opening weekend. And I think that's our litmus test. If Captain Marvel does $80 million or less, then that side knows what it's talking about. Um, they can, they, they're looking at a measurable um, point. And even if I disagree with the way they came up with the methodology of that, that particular set of numbers, there we are. If it opens at 100 or higher official tracking numbers, um, then they were wrong all along, one way or another, for whatever reason. And now, as the numbers you reported say, it looks like it's going to be 100. I, I saw 155 million projected opening, 153, somewhere in there, domestic. That's the numbers we're talking about. So, yeah, I think we have a, a, this is one of those weird moments where we can say, however you think you understand the industry and how you're calculating the numbers in this instance, the boycott had no effect. And it, it just couldn't have. I mean, if it did, then those other numbers that they were projecting that were the projected um, effect would have been, it would have been closer to that. And it was the opposite. It, it, it was more popular then the then the number the projected the official tracking numbers now appear to be, have been conservative. So, yep. I, I think we're we're looking at that moment. Um, I think that probably signals that, not that I don't think we were, weren't already there, but I, I think we can look ahead to episode nine or whatever movie is coming on the horizon that boycotters are making noise about and say, I think we have pretty consistent evidence at this point that it doesn't matter. Yep. Um, that the general audience is just frankly too large for whatever that small group wants to be true to be true. And most of them don't care. That's the biggest thing is that they're excited about this movie for other reasons or right. they weren't going to be moved by this. So ultimately, you know, it's it's definitely certainly a position of this show that it's, you know, th this whole thing was nonsense and having the numbers to back it up is kind of nice. Like It is. It's never been this clear cut before. Right, because uh, there's always been confusion about you know uh, what understanding different people have, but this is pretty clear. They said our effect is going to be this number, and it was almost twice that number. So yep. there we go. So it, it begs question uh, the question, and, and kind of getting into the film. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we're, we're eventually going to get to it. Um, so there's lots to talk about in the film, and uh, the big thing. Let's start thematically. I don't really like. Recap wise, I don't think we need to go through the recap, especially if you've seen the film, you know what happens. Um, it does start off a little slow, I thought. Um, I, I, and maybe that's just my personal feeling is that I'm not super interested in the Kree Star Force and all that kind of thing. Um, but when it actually gets to Earth, we start to see a lot of the film's themes start to come out. And one of the big ones that kind of ties into the issue we're talking about is that uh, Carol Danvers is absolutely kind of existing at the center of uh, being in a uh, profession that is very heavily male dominated. The film goes out of its way to say that they basically would not let her and her friend uh, Maria Rambeau fly. Mm -hmm. uh, this is of course, uh, in many ways, interrogating contemporary sexism through the lens of the 1990s. Um, but it is interesting that thematically throughout the film, uh, there is this recurring pattern that Carol is told by the men in her life, you know, you can't do this. Don't drive that your go-kart that fast. You know, you're not, you know, you won't be able to jump across these ropes on the rope course. Um, you can't fly. And even in the end, when she ends up facing off against uh, her 
mentor who ends up being sort of the arch villain for the film. Uh, he basically says after he she she shoots him out of the sky, he his first thing is like, okay, fight me one on one, no power, just you know, I like prove me wrong, like show me that you can beat me. And her response is just to basically blast him to the side of a mountain because. It is basically like a guy, and I, 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 there's, I've seen more than a few women point this out on the uh, on Twitter. Uh, this is essentially how men communicate with women online: debate me, prove me wrong, argue with me. When on my like, terms, on right? my terms, exactly, yeah. because he knows that obviously on her terms, he's not going to win that fight. Right. So this is, I thought, I think, you know, there's, I, I think this movie overall is pretty good about not being super. Uh, blunt force about its themes but i think that was one where they kind of had to just sort of acknowledge that um this is something that women have to deal with every day and it comes after another really big scene where we where this kind of comes up but we'll we'll come back to that in a moment it's one of the scenes in the movie that actually kind of got me a little teary-eyed um but uh what were your thoughts on this well so and this will touch back to some of the controversies that were going on this film has feminism in it and the thing that's in, most interesting to me though is there were a lot of people who were coming out of the theater and saying, wait, this was what was objectionable? Um, why, what was the big deal about this? And, and, I, and I think that's what's the most powerful part of this film is to say on the one hand, yes, there is feminism in this film. And on the other, you're not gonna find it objectionable um, mm -hmm. in the sense of the fear of feminism. It's like feminism has been um, you know, kind of twisted into this kind of cartoon, um, terror source, and that's not what this is. So what do I mean by that? Um, it's a film where a woman has, throughout her entire life, um, received, you know, negative state identity statements about what she can and can't do from male figures, but she has also had, she discovers, these um, incredibly powerful female relationships that have kind of nurtured and supported her. So you do get that kind of support community, you know, mm -hmm. that comes from what the feminist critique says should be in society, but often isn't because of the, the masculine traits that separate and divide that. Um, but then you also have, you know, this, this moment that you're talking about where she looks at somebody and says, I don't have anything to prove to you. Right. Um, and, and that's, that's her empowerment moment that she, her own sense of herself and self-worth, like that's the moment in the movie. If you've watched the movie, you know, she is constantly trying to figure out who she is. Um, and in fact, there's a moment where she just yells at a scroll, I don't know who I am, right? And you can feel that kind of, mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that, that tear inside her of not knowing. Um, and looking for identity in all of these places. And so then to arrive at that moment in the film where she is saying, I don't have to prove myself to you, or, you know, that's, that's her empowerment kind of coming home. But it comes through a series of things. Yes, reveals about her history um, that she learns, but mostly through the supporting relationships and the way that, that people interact with her that kind of, you know, give her that, that standing that honestly we all need, um, you know, to have that reinforcement that, that people care what we have, that, that they can see us. It's not just about what we think inside our heads, um, that, that kind of social community. So mm -hmm. I, I think that's, that's a pretty powerful part of it all the way through, but that's not, should not be seen as some kind of threat, um, no. you know, to, to the, 
to males, to masculinity, or to anything. It, it's more about empowerment. Right. And I think that's what I've saw, like, because uh, I've been following sort of the social media discourse around uh, Captain Marvel from people who've actually seen it, which has been very, very different than the social media <laughs> discourse from people who haven't. Right. Um, and, you know, especially a lot and this guy, I, I uh, you know, it's kind of where like we we'd have to kind of like show our hands. We're both male. So we don't really have right. like the firsthand experience. But um, I found it kind of moving to hear a lot of women talk about like this is a situation where, you know, Carol at one point says she's been fighting with one hand tied behind her back her whole life mm -hmm. pretty much because, you know, to, to not do that would make others feel inadequate. Right. Right. And. That and, and, you know, I forget and, and I really do apologize because I forget who tweeted this, but something um, like basically uh, they basically said this is how women feel all the time. And right. it is powerful to see a superhero allegory that kind of makes such a really universal situation uh, more obvious, more straightforward. And I think that's really um you know, there, there, there are nitpicks you can have with the movie. I, I certainly have them, but I think what it's getting at is so crucial and so important um, in, in a way that the Marvel Cinematic Universe really can be and finally is trying to take its place and really discuss these things uh, in, in a more meaningful way. And I think it's interesting. One of the um, people, a, a woman who had been, um, I would have classified as exhibiting some toxic attitudes towards this film, um, actually made a post yesterday that surprised me, which is to say, I'm just going to say, guys, um, I, I didn't like, I, I was, you know, I'm, I'm on the side of not wanting this film, not liking Brie Larson, all of that. But, you know, I was in the Air Force and the way they portray the Air Force in the 90s, they got that right. And I actually mm -hmm. really appreciate that they are honoring that I, I didn't have opportunities that other people did. And I just want you to know that they got that part right. And I thought, wow, how... You know, this is somebody who is actually not on the side of wanting to like the film and is seeing that kind of integrity in, in messaging and that they didn't go too over, you know, too harsh with that. They just pointed out that that's a fact. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. That's why she had to do what she did and that people are, are seeing that. I, I think that's that's pretty amazing. It certainly gave me pause, you know, not having really realized the extent to which that was true, certainly in that time period. Yeah, and uh, it is interesting, of course, that this film comes out roughly around the same time uh, that Martha McSally testified to Congress that she was, in fact, raped while she was in right. the Air Force, right? And so I think that, you know, in, in, they would, there's no, obviously, there's no connection between these two facts uh, or between this film and right. that situation. But it is nonetheless interesting that we are starting to maybe this is the start of us coming to terms with a lot of this sort of inst institutionalized sexual assault mm -hmm. and, and sexism and abuse. And, you know, obviously, I don't think that it would be appropriate for Captain Marvel to deal with that particular issue right. um, in terms of like sexual assault. But it is nonetheless, they in their own way, they did discuss like this is a system this is a branch of the military just a military in general that did not and still really doesn't value women the same way and it, and but even outside of the the air force this is something you see in the workplace in higher education everywhere and this is them kind of calling it out and i really i think that was a really uh very welcome yeah and like black panther did um you know calling out institutional racism by the state and others, but not pointing at particular stories, particular people, particular politics, but just to say, we are recognizing these are problems and we're showing you the effects that this has on people um, and how that people have a different struggle when that is pointed at them, their identity is affected, their um, ability to 
earn recognition is affected, um, their confidence, their identity, all of these things. They can achieve all of those things, but they have to work twice as hard and Mm -hmm. they have to, you know, turn to other places. And I think that's why films like this are so important because we're not going to get a lecture about the history, which is what I think some people were afraid was going to happen. But more to the point, we can look at a character and recognize, wow, the, the grit we see in her is different than what we see in some of her contemporaries because of some of the things that happened to her that could not have happened to them right? Um, because they were male and it was just a different right. situation. One of the, and, and again, I'm, I, I probably should have written all this down before I came here, but I'm just now thinking of it. Um, there's another article I wrote, or I, I didn't write this. I'm sorry. I, I read <laughs> um, where uh, they basically made the comparison between Captain America and Captain Marvel that right. Steve gets up because it's the right thing to do. Right. He's got, he doesn't have uh-huh. that quit in him. Captain Marvel, uh, Carol Danvers gets up. She doesn't have that quit in her, but it's not because it's the you know socially right thing to do. It's because she doesn't want to stay down. She does not want to be defined uh, by others, right? right? And it's that sort of chip on her shoulder aspect that um, honestly is her strength. And in fact, we see in the film that literally it's her kryptonite that other people defining who she is and limiting uh-huh. her is what is what stops her and that heroic moment comes after she basically you know um, and this is the scene i was referring to so she's talking to the kree high intelligence um and you know it, it sure does a super cut of you know she's knocked down she gets back mm-hmm. up time and time and time again ever since she was a little girl up till now and like it is this kind of heroic moment basically you know this is her saying i'm going to take this on on my own terms i'm not going to let anybody else define who i am and then she proceeds to basically you know become the most powerful superhero we've seen so far because literally what was holding her back was not some magical artifact. It was basically how others treated her, especially uh, on the male side. Yeah. And, and I'll say that that is, I mean, I'm, I'm getting chills at this moment, just thinking about that sequence, Mm -hmm. but, um, but it's incredibly powerful. And, and to be honest, seeing her standing there taking on, um, you know, the Supreme intelligence, that's powerful. But I'm telling you, the that the little girl standing up in the sand with that look on her face. I have seen that look in daughters of friends of mine. You know that that kind of "you are not going to hold me down" look mm-hmm. that is incredibly powerful. And I just have to say, I don't have a daughter, um, but I was extremely pleased that my son saw that. Um, yeah. That he could see that um, even when it's not fair, that some people are going to not let those unfair actions define them, that there's always um, a response, you know, yep. that, that can come from that. I was, of course, really warm to see, you know, when we saw um, on that Thursday night, um, fan event night, um, there was a, a row of um, young women down at the front, um, I'm, you know, age seven, eight years old or so. Um, and they were all wearing Captain Marvel shirts. Um, and I thought that was, I mean, that was just incredible just to see that, that they're getting this too. You know, my son wears superhero shirts all the time and goes to the theater. They clearly got this right. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and that was, that was cool. But knowing that my son is watching all of that, I, I that's, that's important. I think mm-hmm. as well, boys need to understand that this is not just their space. Yep. Absolutely. And I think um, what's sneaky about her whole 
uh, about the uh, uh, tagline higher, further, faster, right? Yeah, is that it, it's it's both kind of uh, indicative of her personality, but also that women do have historically had to go higher, further and faster to be taken as seriously as men. Um, and so like, in, in all these in all these ways, both uh, overt and subtle, like, we're, I think, like you said, this is an important message for everybody to receive, not just young girls. Um, so yeah, I, I can't wait to show this movie to my nieces, my nephews. Um, oh, yeah, for that reason. So it's I'm really gonna- important. I'm going to dig in a little bit into that phrase because um, I have some friends that I've been talking with and they'll be like, he didn't just let him say that and didn't respond. <laughs> because the, the thing about the higher, further, faster, more phrase um, right. that they used in the 2014 series, it's, it was really interesting. Like I, I've been trying to figure out why they dropped that last word um, out of it. Um, but Maybe the whole idea... Three, I don't know. Well... They just decided it sounded better with just three words. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but the idea, you know, higher, further, faster, more um, was, you know, this idea of Carol Danvers in the 2014 series um, kind of looking back at these uh, female aviators um, and the ones who were setting records. And the whole idea there was they weren't setting records for women in planes. They were setting records mm-hmm. and, you know, higher, further, faster, more. Um, that it took more to do all of that, that they're constantly striving, their eyes are always on the horizon, they're the people that don't accept boundaries, um, that won't be told not to do it. And that's kind of a, the theme that gets, um, you know, kind of lodged into Carol at that moment. It's just been kind of funny because I, I don't know if you've seen the t-shirts that um, they've rolled out that I think are great, except, you know, they'll say, uh, you know, higher, further, faster, I have a couple of those shirts. Um, but the one that's really funny to me is, it says higher, further, faster, and then uses the letter um, from each of those to spell out hero. Mm-hmm. But then you get to the O and there's nothing. <laughs> and I'm like, you had it. You had it right there. You it's just so had to close. put more. Right. I mean, so it's, <laughs> but I mean, it's a, it's a quibble. And, and I'm sure there was a reason they did that um, because it didn't resonate or people were confused about the more or what that was, but that is an interesting um, disconnect where you see that um, represented. On the other hand, the way that they use it in the film, you know, they only verbally say it out loud once is just fantastic. There's so many things that are in this film that are Easter eggs, callbacks, and references to pieces of the legacy of this character, and most of them are so subtle um, that I just, it's just clever. And, yeah. and this, this was one of them. So it, it kind of got me over my, where is that word objection that I was kind of ridiculously having in my head for a while. But um, <laughs> I thought that was great. Um, so there's a lot of other stuff to talk about. And, and certainly if we have to talk about, uh, or if, uh, if we're going to talk about these themes, we have to also address the fact that uh, uh, Maria Rambeau was in the film. Uh, Maria Rambeau uh, in this film cast as the mother of Monica Rambeau, right. who set my next wave loving heart a flutter when I realized Man. that she was going to be in the movie in some way. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping if I'm hoping this opens the door for next wave in like 2027 or something like that. Um, well, absolutely. And just to, just to spell that out. Um, so Monica Rambeau, um, yeah. is the, is Captain Marvel, um, on the Avengers starting in December of 1982 after, uh, you know, Marvel had died earlier that year. Um, and so Captain Marvel, Monica Rambeau, who in the comics, was an African-American police um, detective who gets powers and then becomes kind of an Avenger in training, but an African-American woman who is Captain America for 
you know, 15 years or so. I mean, it was around 99, I think, when she stopped um, using that name. The current name that she uses is Photon. Um, and so that mm-hmm. word, you know, that showed up on the side of Maria Rambo's plane as her call sign. There's all this discussion. There's all this w- interesting foreshadowing in the film of I'll meet you halfway. Nick Fury says, only if you learn how to glow like she does, which made me happy. And then she said, you don't know. I may design a, a you know, a spacecraft. You don't know. Yep. And and I was like, that spirit yep. um, is so fantastic. And I'm, you know, I always want to see it now. Like, I, 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 yeah. I love the idea that this film happened in the 90s. So technically, Monica Rambeau is of age to be a superhero in Endgame, if that if we want that to happen, you know? Well, especially I, with the uh, time travel that may or may not be a component of it. Right, exactly. And, you know, who knows? I mean, who knows? I mean, I could do all kinds of speculative theories that are We making, will later. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but uh, great that she was in the film. Yeah. Great interaction, great rapport between the characters. Just, um, and it's great that they're all kind of networked together in those seminal moments. That they're all mm-hmm. part of each part of each other's support structures. Yep. Though I will say one of the more uh, legitimate critiques of the film, and and I don't think it's even necessarily just of this film. I think it's just more of Hollywood in general and how we approach these stories. Um, is that uh, it is still very much a white uh, female perspective. Um, you know, we we still need to have that moment where a non-white female superhero breaks through, and that definitely felt noticeable. That Maria, um, you know, was part of that support structure and is a good friend, but is still ultimately kind of in that sidekick role in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's a that's a fair criticism to make of this film, but I think you also have to make that of just kind of the the the, uh, the industry in general at this point. Um, and, and hopefully, we'll get there eventually. Well, but then the contrast between Maria and Monica, you know, yeah. the, the idea that Maria is saying, no, I can't risk my, I have a daughter. I can't mm-hmm. do all these things. And the daughter is like, let me remind you what a hero is. Yeah. <laughs> Think of the example you're have, setting for me, which is one of the best. Right. Parts. Oh man, it really was. But, yeah. but I mean, you can tell there, they presented her Monica Mm-hmm. as man that's a hero's hero i mean yep. and if and when we see her as a superhero it's going to make all the sense in the world because of the work they're doing oh, there i can't wait yeah it's going to be I'm so super good. excited um okay so other things uh what's interesting is that okay so this film starts off building up the scrolls as a threat um mm-hmm. and complete and, and of course if you think back to the history of marvel comics the scrolls have always been a pretty uh, significant threat, right? Right. Um, this film does not do that at all. In fact, midway through, it sets the whole thing on its head uh, by basically casting the scrolls as um, a species that is essentially on the run. They are refugees. The Kree have basically been hunting them almost to the point of extinction. Um, and so this is not only a sort of radical departure for Marvel and kind of the sort of Marvel canon, but also I think a really timely and interesting theme that nobody seems interested in talking about. So I want to talk about it right now um, that the whole, the idea of refugees and the idea of seeing the other as terrorist and that justifying the sort of violence used against them um, is really powerful. And I, again, I'm just so surprised people aren't picking up yeah. on that. Well, and let's, let's tease it all the way out. I mean, you've got a, you know, demonized refugee population yep. of off colored characters who look strange look scary they are not normative in every which way 
Um, it's really not until you get the characters into extended dialogue that you start to see, um, I know we're talking about alien races, but you see, wow, there's a humanity there. They're right. worried about their families. They're worried about their homes. They're, they are disgusted by what they've had to do in order to help their families survive. And they're mm -hmm. trying to, I mean, you know, there's that moment where, um, you know, Talos is trying to give Carol an affirmation of, you know, my hands are filthy too. Don't feel bad for what you've had to do. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, uh, you know, Dial back the guy who's there. Yeah. lost everything is trying to tell the white woman who's been, you know, slaughtering his people that, mm -hmm. This is just, this is the situation. It's like, you know, we're, we're trying to recognize, you know, there is the war is hell aspect of that, but it's also just recognizing this very gritty, you know, perspective, you know, which yeah. is that the stereotype of what a scroll, scroll is um, kind of leads the audience in, in a very biased way to expect certain things that then get turned on their head. And, and I think there is a lot of really interesting um, commentary there if we just weren't so overwhelmed talking about the perceived sexism, you know, yeah. that, um, uh, from all the, all the, you know, trolling culture, I think that there are several other things that like mm -hmm. this, that would be very, very important for us to dig. This out. is absolutely the most nakedly political movie they've made since black Panther. I know it's only been a year, but, yeah. <laughs> like, um, but this, they are going for it in a way that I think is a lot more subtle than black Panther was. And that's not, that's not a knock on black Panther. The way they did it was very masterful. Um, but it is not as immediately overt and in your face as what Black Panther is trying to get at. Sure. Uh, and, and, and a lot of that, a lot of credit, I think, um, should also go to Ben Mendelsohn for playing Talos, um, who took what could have been a pretty thankless villain role, um, had they gone the kind of the way we expected it to go, and really made it one of the most interesting characters in the film, where he is fundamentally, he's not a warmonger, he's not a tactician, he's just a dad trying to get back to his family and trying to help out his friends. Um, it's, it, it was really kind of moving when you sort of see the walls come down. He's just like really shows who he is. But I'm still curious, where did he get that milkshake? Um, <laughs> there's a scene where he's drinking a milkshake and he yeah. goes into Maria Rambo's house. He's got the milkshake. My wife and I have been trying to figure this out since we saw the movie. Where did he get it? Did he just stop off? Where did he get the money? Well, there's some other pieces <laughs> like when he is standing outside that house, you know, a few minutes of screen time later, um, he is in his alien garb, except he's wearing a blue blazer. Yeah. And uh, my, it's a good you know, look. It is. It's great look, uh, yeah. you know, but, but my thought is he must have assumed the form when the director was in his office without his jacket. I mean, like there's a lot of that stuff where yeah. you're kind of looking around saying, um, why is that in that form there? And I, I just think that that's one thing I've always liked about um, the MCU's approach is yeah, they're not going to explain all that. They're just going to let it be. Yeah. And if it's really important, we'll circle back to it. Um, yep. Like if it's really important, like how did Nick Fury lose his eye or something like that? That's something Which, we're going to circle back to. Right. <laughs> okay. So I, I, we got to talk about that because uh, I have seen people complain about this, but I thought it was so first off goose is amazing. Um, all yeah. the all the discussion about him stealing the movie is absolutely true. Um, they got a lot of the cat behaviors down where my wife and I were nudging each other saying that's our cat. He looks just because he does look a bit like <laughs> our cat. And, uh, you know, so the and like just the like, little things like when they go into zero gravity, he like reaches out with his four uh, four legs and grabs mm -hmm. Nick Fury's arm. That's a total cat move. My cat's done that um, to kind of just like say, OK, I'm holding on to you now. I own you. Um, but uh, 
<laughs> scratching out Nick Fury's eye. I figured that was, was that was what was going to happen. I wasn't sure if that was how it was going to go down, but I'm like, wouldn't it be funny if that's what was going to happen? And it did. And yeah. I laughed so hard because I'm like that. And the best part is like, because people are like, oh, this isn't as cool. Like, you know, it, it makes his line from Winter Soldier not make any sense. But look, he said the last time somebody or last time I trusted somebody, I lost an eye. He right. trusted Goose. Goose scratched his eye out. Yeah. So he was right. Well, Nothing about this change. His character isn't lessened. It's just funny. Oh, but see, here's here's the other, you know, context of that. I, I, I really do think people sometimes have very literal expectations on these films. Right. You know, the Samuel L. Jackson's portrayal of Nick Fury throughout the whole film is jarring in a good way it's like this is not nick fury we are not you, you know we're, we're used to think of mr secrets paranoid who doesn't say anything who says harsh things who's mr you know always exerting his will that is not the nick fury of this film he's expecting mm -hmm. the best of everyone and he's light-hearted and he smiles a lot and he yeah. trusts and you know so when we start talking about how does this character get from here to you know, the 2012 Avengers moment, there's, there's, there's stuff in between. But what's really interesting to me about the, the eye situation is, you know, Coulson comes in and starts, you know, the scrolls tortured you and took your eye and he just, I'll never, I'll neither confirm nor deny. It's like the secrets, yeah. ha the secrets have now started. Yep. The mythos of Nick Fury has uh, been unleashed. And, you know, I've heard people say, oh my gosh, they made that into a cartoon ridiculous thing instead of some noble thing. But I'm like, no, that's the point, mm -hmm. is that Fury is mystique. He is half false rumor story. He's, mm -hmm. you know, he, he's a paranoid delusion of the people who fear him. And he, there is a human under there, and the human's actually a pretty likable guy who no one gets to see anymore because he doesn't trust anybody. And I, I think that's a really interesting way um, to put that like that his yeah. mythos is is building and, and and honestly like there's a quirk to that like the quirkiness of it I think is part of what I've always loved about Marvel is that there is just weird explanations for stuff sometimes mm -hmm. um, and honestly like and, and it, it does it also like you said that we don't really see a lot of the character we actually do once in a while like he does have his moments of snarkiness he does have his moments of kind of uh you know letting that sort of goofier side poke out it's just that you know 20 years have passed in between and a lot of stuff's happened since then right um, i mean in his office you know he'll say you're wrong about me i do share you know mm -hmm. and it's like yeah he's actually being more honest in that moment but you're kind of you know programmed to not accept that out face value because of the way he's he's been and that's kind of the thing in captain america's apartment in winter soldier he seems more open and genuine but that's that's the thing it's like the layers um right. of, of what it is whereas when we see him in captain marvel he just seems a lot more open he's funny um and he is sarcastic and he is serious in moments but he's also just you know I, and, and just the idea that thinking about a moment where nick fury had been fighting in the cold war and it had never at that point occurred to him that aliens were a thing mm -hmm. is really interesting too because it, it kind of shows that all this paranoia is about his deep fear of what can happen to the planet yep um but also his great, you know, desire to prevent that and, yep. and that that transcends all of the other human relationships he has around him in yep. the 90s. He's not there yet, but it's starting. And that, mm -hmm. that I just thought that was a really interesting introduction of that. 
Well, let's talk about the performances overall, because obviously Samuel Jackson did great and he has great chemistry with Brie Larson throughout the whole. I think they're kind of b- uh, back and forth with some of the most fun parts of the movie. Um, and, and, you know, we talk about Maria Rambeau, uh, just mm-hmm. uh, great performance there. But let's talk about Brie Larson, because I think uh, that, you know, again, this is another instance where we have a movie coming out that basically is this is the character. This is the actor, actress playing them. You know, they are now associated with this role. How do you think she did? Yeah, so I I will confess up front, and and I'll explain why I tried to reserve as much judgment as I could ahead of time. When they announced Brie Larson, I did a spit take. Um, I I couldn't, like, all of my reading of Carol Danvers, that would not have been the actress in a million years I would have picked. Um, On the other hand, I had exactly the same reaction to Chris Evans. Mm-hmm. Um, as Captain America, he had played Human Torch. He'd been, you know, in Losers. He'd been, you know, I, I just I couldn't see that. And now, you know, four films later, I was like, well, yeah, he's Captain America. I, they, <laughs> how did they know? <laughs> you know, how'd mm-hmm. they know this kid was going to grow into that? And so when I heard that, I kind of thought, you know, this sounds so wrong but they've been so right yeah. in so many other instances that I'm just going to wait. And now having seen it, this is the screen Carol Danvers that needed to be. Yeah. Um, she has a very reserved charisma and charm that is that really plays well if you think of a character who is you know heavily influenced by military culture, who actually... You know, if you want to think about it this way, I, I kind of think of her as Carol Danvers spends the first three quarters of the film kind of stuck in some masculine roles, you know, mm-hmm. of her own doing because of the military culture, because of the way that, you know, she is operating. She's struggling to, you know, express herself like there's like there's that that moment in the records archives when um, Samuel L. Jackson's trying to get her says, are you OK? And she says, yeah, but the way her eyes move or narrow, I mean, she did. She's doing a lot of micro acting, um, which kind of has this. She's being funny with it. She's being sarcastic, but it's also, you know, this very reserved, but saying a lot at the same time. And I think that's what led a lot of people when they saw some of that in the trailers to say that she was very wooden. But to be honest, in context, um, it I, I thought it was powerful. I mean, it really was. She yeah. she found her voice in this film, yeah. and, 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 and she kind of acted her way through that. Yeah, and I mean, she's got an Oscar for a reason, right? right. Like, you know, she's very yeah. good at what she does. And, you know, this I think I think that's dead on. And and for me personally, I didn't have a lot of preconceived notions of who Carol Danvers should or shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I watched that. I'm like, yeah, that's Carol Danvers. Like, that's that's yeah. who that is now. Like, just like you see Chris Evans. Yep, that's Captain America. Robert Downey Jr. Obviously, that's Iron Man. Right. So I, I think, you know, like you said, they've historically been dead on. I mean, even Robert Downey Jr. back in the beginning, that was a gamble. And people, oh, I and didn't, people forget I didn't about that. Work. Yeah, I, I. Yeah, that was a huge gamble. I mean, if you can believe this, I didn't see Iron Man open weekend. I didn't think that was going to be a good film. No. And <laughs> boy, man. I, was, I, I saw it opening weekend, but I and, but I had like, really? Robert Downey Jr.? All right. Yeah. But like, it, it turned out great. And I don't know. I, I think it, it's going to be interesting to see how she plays with the other characters. Um, you know, from that yeah. little brief snippet we got in the, uh, the post-credit sequence. Um, we can't tell anything from that, but... Yeah. Uh, I, I think she's going to deliver something interesting to that ensemble that we don't really have yet 
Um, and so I, I'm, I'm excited for it. Well, and I mean, in a sense, like up until now, like I, I think about, um, you know, I really did like Infinity War. And like when you start thinking about what are the moments, you know, in that film, you think about, you know, Thor's arrival, Captain America's arrival, you know, these moments, but it's usually this, the way that heroism is, is very reactive. And I think now you've got a proactive element, you know, right in the Mm -hmm. heart of it, you know, somebody who is going to leap first and ask questions later, like she did all through this film, it's going to be a different Avengers now. And I think that's, that's really exciting and interesting. And honestly, it's going to be kind of at the heart of some of the best Avengers stories that this is a group of people who shouldn't even be in the same room together like, right. who are now trying to fight this unit, the same threat together. Um, and, and I think there's going to be that interesting thing to it. So, yeah, I'm really I'm more excited now for Endgame than I was before uh, because of what she'll bring to it. In the comics, I, I've been, you know, this has been a modern conceit, you know, with Captain America and Captain Marvel. You know, I'd said there was a lot of, like, um, rubbing between those characters intentionally. You know, they're trying to get those two characters into similar space. One of the one of the great running lines through all of that is, you know, the Army Air Force thing, um, where these two characters are constantly like, well, I don't know how they do it in the Air Force, right? But, <laughs> yeah. you know, that that's Cap. Yep. And then, and then you know, and he'll call her Air Force sometimes, you know, and that's just kind of the the joke, but she get but the whole point is every time he does that, she comes back even harder. And, and yep. that's like their little, you know, professional um, relationship has that kind of that, that caustic rivalry to it. But underneath, you know, is their personal relationship, which is like all the Avengers in the comics tends to have these really deep, affectionate, you know, pieces, but I do hope they at least bring some of that dialogue into that film because it's so great to watch those two go at each other. It's it's kind of like the the Brooklyn Queens thing you saw between Spider-Man and Captain America in Civil yep. War. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it's she's going to be more than able to uh, keep up with a lot of the kind of like uh, snark and kind of deadpan comments and everything. So I think she's going to be great. Yep. Um, so we've now had a kind of an experience uh uh, we, this this is our sort of last big puzzle piece before Endgame, right? Right. Um, we now know who Captain Marvel is. We have some ideas of how she's going to fit in. There are some hints about what Endgame's going to look like and some potential ways, uh, and also some ways that have kind of filled in some gaps. Like, for example, um, you know, we know we know how the Tesseract comes into Nick Fury's hands, um, which is mm-hmm. an incredibly convoluted way to get it there, honestly. Right, right. Um, but uh, so, of course, if you saw the film, you know, basically Tesseract was lost. Howard Stark finds it. It somehow ends up in the hands of Marvell, who's working uh, undercover as a human. I forget her name uh, as a human. Uh, Dawson? Uh, Lawson. Lawson. Yeah. Lawson. Okay. Yeah. Um, so she's working undercover in Project Pegasus. Pegasus is an offshoot shield. Um, she fires it off into space for safekeeping. It gets decked down to Earth after Goose eats it. And then hocks it up on Nick Fury's desk, which the idea that an infinity stone is swallowed by a cat creature and then hocked up on Nick Fury's desk is one of those things that just feels quintessentially Marvel to me. Maybe I've got a different understanding of of this universe (laughs) than other people do, but it just feels right to me. Um, So but the other big thing is that this also fills in some gaps with uh, Ronan, the accuser from Guardians of the Galaxy. He does not get a lot to do in this film. Lee Pace, honestly, I'm kind of wondering why they even put him in here, but it does sort of give him some background. Okay, so now we know why he was so furious um, at the start of Guardians of the Galaxy. Very likely, 
Captain Marvel sort of forced a peace between the Kree and all the other, uh, the Skrulls and everybody else. He was not happy with that peace. So that's why he's going off, striking off as like a rogue agent. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, of course, we're at this point where, okay, so we filled in some of the backspace. We know why Nick Fury's, in fact, we even know where the Avengers got their name now, which I thought was cute. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's it's a reference to her call sign. So in a lot of ways, she is literally the first Avenger, even though Captain America was listed right. as such. Um, so all these things together, do where do you think we are now? Like, do uh, have we filled in the gaps? Are there questions we still need to have answered? Um, <laughs> as we're staring down, uh, we're a little over a month from Endgame now. Oh man, I you know I think that knowing what the questions are is the problem. Um, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Um, right. You know, at, at, in terms of being, you know, fans, et cetera. I don't think, like, I think that a lot of the worry um, coming from those who were very critical of this film before it came out um, is that there's a fear that what um, Endgame is going to look like is, oh, things suck, They're, things are so terrible, and then the Avengers are going to launch an all launch an all out assault on Thanos. He's going to beat him down again. And then Captain Marvel's going to fly in and pop him. Um, right. and that's going to end it. And I don't think that's where this is. Um, no, I did not get I, that impression at all. Yeah. And, and I do think that putting an infinity stone at the heart of her origin, which that is the true new part, um, yep. of this, that, that isn't, fit with any other like you know you can look at her origin in this film and say it's part binary it's part her origin from miss marvel it's part you know there's all these little pieces that we can kind of pull together and say there's an amalgam but there's also some stuff that's new and so the idea that her facing off with thanos as kind of a functional infinity stone you know all of a sudden explains right why Mm -hmm. this power is what it is and and why um you know, she is a game changer. And yet at the same time, I don't think, you know, that's one of six, right? Infinity Stones. And, and I really do think this is still going to be this, you know, team effort. Of course, I think there's going to be sacrifice, right. especially with the people whose contracts have run out, yeah. <laughs> you know, and all of that. And so, I mean, I think we can see the, the, those pieces coming, you know, but at the same time, what excited me about the Captain Marvel film is it opens some doors um, to what could be possible. You know, when I when you think about, okay, this movie is set to talk about Kree and Skrulls. Mm-hmm. So immediately my head, like I'm sure most of the comics reading audience, went back to those 80s Kree Skull War comics. But it's not. It's more, you know, Galactic Storm. It's more later. It's, it, it's like they're wrapping in so many themes and turning them on their heads that, okay, I, I like most people, even though I try not to say, I know what happened in the comics. So I know what should happen in this film. This film helped me remember. No, I don't because this is not that it's something different. You know, there are visual callbacks to things, but this is a different text and it is, it's being constructed in, in a, in a good way. The way that Captain Marvel rebuilt this character to remove a lot of the unfortunateness also resets the possibilities of what mm-hmm. we're going to see. I understand guardians, of the galaxy a little bit better. Um, but it also lets me know that there's a lot of it. I don't understand, you know, because immediately people say, well, wait a minute, where's she been for 20 years? And I'm like, well, you know, looking there's- for, looking for refugees all over the, 
all over the galaxy and then finding a home is going to take some time. But mm -hmm. yeah, she, uh, I'm not sure that the Supreme Intelligence is even around anymore. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, is Ronan, are Ronan's actions, um, you know, the, the actions of a rogue faction within a collapsing empire, or is he a flat out terrorist from a fallen empire? You know, yeah. I mean, that, that distinction is huge and could go a long way to explaining how Guardians is more Star Wars than we ever thought, which is it's operating in kind of a here was this overarching, you know, authority structure that has collapsed. And in between that is where all these great swashbuckling fantasies happen mm -hmm. because there's no authority. Right. And, you know, we get to see that uh, see that occur. Um, I'm very interested in that idea, but also the, the Ravengers. I mean, just all these other stories that like, maybe that's why some of these things got to happen because they're happening in the context of this collapsing empire, which is because Carol Danvers has taken it to her former overlords. Right. And honestly like that, I'm more interested to go back and watch guardians again, because now with this context, it's going to probably change a lot of that movie Oh man! Um, yeah. in a meaningful way. And I can't imagine that they didn't have this at least somewhere in the back of their minds as they were working on this. Like they probably don't, I, I don't think they planned the MCU out that far in advance, but I kind right. of feel like they had a rough sketch or maybe gun had a rough sketch of how things worked out in the cosmic side of things. Um, and this fits very nicely into that. So it is. And, and we know that, you know, you know, it, it's kind of like the George Lucas conundrum, you know, how much of this did he know and how much did he invent along the way? You know, we do know, you know, for example, they said, yeah, we probably shouldn't have put the infinity gauntlet in the Asgardian throne room. Right. right. We shouldn't have done that because we didn't know. Right. But on the other hand, there was a turning point when they figured it out, you know, some themes. And so I think, I think it's a little bit more like JJ Abrams. Let's bake something interesting in and see if it goes somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but they've done a really great job keeping up with all those threats. Most and, of the problems they've been able to fix relatively quickly, like without too much difficulty. Now, one that some people are bringing up about this film and they are absolutely right to do so. Um, and I, I don't, you know, you're going to have to retcon one or the other um, is the fact that in Captain Marvel set in the 1990s, Nick Fury is publicly using shield mm -hmm. as a phrase. Whereas in Iron Man in 2008, they seem to be coming up with the name shield mm -hmm. and haven't quite decided on it. And when people point that out, yeah, you've, you've got a continuity problem there and I'm not sure what the explanation or fix is, you know, what, what, what that issue is, but yeah, there's, that's one where they, they lost a thread. Um, they did, but I also like so I have this feeling like I, I think that is the moment maybe where this has truly become a comic book universe in and of itself yeah. is that they're already forgetting things they wrote a long time right. ago and making uh, mistakes like that. And I think that's great. I think we are about to start having if this goes, you know, there's a lot of theories about what's going to come next after Endgame. You know, I, I think they're going to they've said they're going to tell more personal stories for a while. They're not going to try to do this big, you know literal end game, right? Mm -hmm. um, kind of approach. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, they're going to have to do some reworking or at least stop telling these epic interrelated stories because it's too complex now. There, mm -hmm. there, there are too many problems. We've already got some timeline problems that come with Doctor Strange and come with, you know, I mean, you have to really massage it in certain ways to make it work. Homecoming um, kind of screwed up the timeline a bit too. 
It, it did, it, depending yeah. on how you view certain things, right? right. I mean, you can't, you can't look at the, the dates and the times and make them all fit. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't all work anymore. And yet at the same time, you know, that's also comics. Um, you know, Peter Parker could not have had the number of adventures he had and not be an 80-year-old person at this time. You know, right. I mean, it, it's there, there's a comicness to it um, that I kind of like. Um, one of the things I also find interesting, though, is thinking about they they were so specific with Captain Marvel on, you know, this crash happened six years ago. That was 1989. Mm-hmm. Boom. This is 1995. We know Winter Soldier started in 1991. Like, I mean, they are starting to really nail some stuff down. So we know... You know, Howard Stark died in 1991. That's why this is five years after that, which is six years after the crash. You know, trying to put together the pieces of where these objects and things are, you can do that. But I also think the more you do that, the more you torture yourself because they're these are different directors, right? <laughs> right. I'm curious who's in charge of keeping track of all that at Marvel. And if, and if there isn't somebody, is that a job we can apply for? Like, is right. that a thing? That, will, will they take people with PhDs? Yeah. I mean, you know, over in Lucasfilm, you know, which is a completely separate, you know, entity, you know, they have the Lucasfilm storytelling team that that's kind of what they do is they not only keep track of everything, but they decide which things Here's what used to be canon. Here's what is canon. What are we going to move, right? And and mm-hmm. then they're constantly signaling on that. And I thought that same thing. Um, yeah, I'm not Marvel Studios. I don't think has that structure, and I really wish they did because they're really good on about 95% of what they do. And then there's a moment where I'm like, yeah, nobody's keeping up with that stuff. <laughs> right. Uh, so any last thoughts on Captain Marvel um, and uh, just kind of her place in this universe now? Um, what you're looking forward to if they do a sequel, anything like that? Well, so a few things. As a as a Captain Marvel fan, you know, when people ask me, what do I think? You know, I have a lot of comics and, and a lot of um, stuff. Um, and I said, you know, I'm pleased. You know, there are... There are things in there that seem strange to me, like, why did you do this and not that? Maybe I'm not the right audience for that because I'm way too close to some of these storylines and privilege certain things in my head, you know. Um, But on the other hand, it's a solid Marvel movie. And the thing about Marvel that's so different from DC and Warner Brothers is Marvel characters don't tend to be iconic but I kind of feel like this time they've done that. Um, you know, when, when Marvel says that they think of, you know, there's this old, you know, kind of story about how Marvel's response to who is your wonder woman. And they, and they say, well, it's not captain Marvel cause she's our Superman. Um, you know, you can kind of see that um, we're going to position her as an icon and like her symbols and everything that is a very kind of rigid, iconic piece to her that is, you know, none of the other characters are quite like that, with the exception of maybe Captain America, but even he is a pretty porous between films. I mean, they, they do play and, and, and adjust him. This might be a new era of MCU films. I mean, I, I'm going to be interested to see if, if that's the case. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, um, I it's believable. Um, she's a solid character, and I think very likable. Even if I weren't a fan, um, I would probably be liking it. But as a fan, I'm... I'm excited. I really love that we have just broken open the galactic 
storyboard, mm-hmm. you know, at this point. Um, unlike, you know, what you said earlier, I didn't want to circle back and say, I really liked that they put the Star Force in. I, I thought there was some, you know, well, early... They had to, but I just wasn't <laughs> interested in no, them for the most part. And, and I was, just because I'm like, this is, you know, 1968 Marvel standing on the bridge of the spaceship arguing with Yon Rog about how to treat Earth and the threats coming mm-hmm. to, like, I mean, I love that stuff. And so the fact that they worked some of that in, they did significantly change it um, and make it more exciting and interesting and streamlined. But at the same time, I'm like, I kind of felt like, wow, that's that's kind of a, hey, you guys that liked him in the green and white suit, you know, remember the Cree back then? We're going to show you a little bit of that. And then, of course, very mm-hmm. quickly we find out, oh, no, it's not the way we viewed the Cree then. It's the way we view the Cree now. Right. which is, you know, the Imperial um, force that, you know, has kind of mucked up the universe. Um, but I, I really like that. I think that, you know, the idea that um, Guardians can have more context, the fact that Nova Corps be- could become more of a storytelling force. Um, I still kind of feel like Galactic Marvel has been an experiment for the film franchise. And this is the property that kind of gives it some centeredness. Um you know, bringing bringing the Guardians into Infinity War was very powerful and connective, but making Captain Marvel be that person with a foot in both of those were both of those universes, you know, literally as well as you know, figuratively, I think expands the possibilities. I, I, there's so many stories that are now accessible, and I and I would love the. I'm a science fiction guy at heart too, mm-hmm. and I love the fact that we could get, be getting real Marvel science fiction soon and not be afraid of it. Yeah, here's hope. And I think that like that's uh, again, I always see the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a collection of films that operate within different genres and right. uh, get into that sci fi instead of just space opera stuff is really potentially compelling. It really is. Um, OK, so I've got my, my cat. My, my little goose is uh, is uh, kind of giving me the wrap it up sign. Um, <laughs> so uh, is there anything uh, you'd like to promote or anything you want to, uh, to kind of plug while you're while we got you? Um, well, I mean, I have several projects in the work and in in the works and presentations coming up um i do have a book chapter um that's coming out in a um in a book um that i believe is called no normal it's it's a book about uh miss marvel um Mm -hmm. my chapter is about carol danvers and miss marvel kind of in a mentorship role um and and ironically how civil war ii is the end of that you know right i mean because it was a very personal i remember that very clearly yep yeah and so um so I, I do have um, that coming out soon, and you know, and of course, here at you know CU Boulder, we are, continue to have undergraduate research projects, classes, courses. We're really trying to get people to understand that these stories are enjoyable, but they also are doing a lot of cultural work, um, mm-hmm. and trying to get uh, people to understand the power of them. That it's not just mere enjoyment entertainment um, and that, that this is something that they can study and help improve um, responsibly is kind of a, a core value of ours. And I always, always love to, to plug and say, hey, if you like comics and want to talk about comics and want to talk about how comics can help make society better, um, you know, this is one of the places um, to come do that. We'd love to, to network people together. All right. J. Richard Stevens, thank you very much. Uh, very much appreciate. Always love talking to you about Marvel and all that, uh, and especially on this one. So uh, thank you for being on Serious Fun. Well, thank you for having me. 
Thanks again to J. Richard Stevens for being on this week's Serious Fun, and thanks to Stitcher for hosting Serious Fun, as well as all the other Phoenix Studios Podcast Network shows at uwgb.edu forward slash podcast. And a quick and special shout out to Pinar Toprak, uh, the composer for Captain Marvel, the first woman to score a Marvel Cinematic Universe film. Uh, you're listening to some of her work right now. It's really quite good, so if you're interested, the soundtrack is, of course, available. Until next time, we'll catch you on Serious Fun. You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. For more podcasts, visit uwgv.edu forward slash podcasts. <laughs> it was funny. My cat was just up here, like whining around the microphone, telling me, okay, it's time to stop. Whatever you're doing, just stop. I want you to pay attention to me. I've um, got an infinity stone coming up. You're going to deal yeah. with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, my hope is that Flurkins have a long lifespan. He's going to be around in some capacity in the future movies. But that's my big question is where is Goose? I mean, yeah. See, that's the thing. Like in my like nerd heart of hearts, Endgame is what everybody's afraid it is, except. Carol Danvers gets kicked into the mud and suddenly Monica shows up and is the savior, right? Ooh, the savior hero. Yeah. Or Goose eats Thanos. I mean, <laughs> why if not? If Goose eats Thanos, I'm going to, I'm going to actually put this in after at the end of the show. If Goose eats Thanos, that's it. There, there, we, there are no other films. Like, no, I, I don't just mean Marvel films. I mean, like movies are done. Like right. that is as good as it's going to get. Nothing is going to top that. Man, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I can. <laughs> <laughs>